Let me recast this. Many of you were, were here a couple of weeks ago when we first broke over into, into chapter 5, but there has been some, some time that has elapsed, and so I want to kind of rephrase or re- recast this so you kind of get the, the broad overarching background that Paul is working from. Um, really, about the time he gets to, to verse 3 in chapter 5, he begins to talk about things that, that don't make great, polite table conversation, right? Sexual immorality. Um, it's just not the type of thing that we tend to talk about when we go home for, for Thanksgiving dinner. Hey, Mom, can you pass the turkey leg? You done anything sexually immoral lately? Right? Those aren't the types of conversations we're having. And so, the, But he's, he's talking about the fact that they are in Christ. Be imitators of God, verse 1. His beloved children, know who you are, and as a result of knowing who you are, walk it out in a particular way. And so he's, he went through and he was talking about that. And the ways that he said you shouldn't live out this thing were typified in sexual immorality, all, co- all covetousness, and, and really joking and jesting about these things. And so he's got that mindset. He's got that understanding as he goes back through this. Let's see how Paul connects it in 5, 6 through 14. So he gets into verse 6 and he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes. And it comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are, in, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so the first thing that Paul says when he opens this passage is, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And so what we see there is that there is some kind of opposition that is breaking out against the church there in Ephesus. There are some type of people espousing something, and Paul categorically refers to every bit of of communication they refer to it as as empty words, as empty words. They're not engaged in conversations centered around great logical thought and employing these things and and saying, look, this is really what you need to do, and and this doesn't logically make sense for this, But, but Paul categorically refers to the to the opponents there as engaging in empty words. And we recognize, look here, that they're deceptive. That these, these, these words, these arguments that are moving against the church there in Ephesus, they're for the purpose of deception. They're for the purpose of deception. And he calls them empty words. Now, look back in chapter 4. Look back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, starting in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. How did the Gentiles walk? He says next, he says, In the futility, in the futility of their minds. Look in 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due 
to their hardness of heart. And so what we see breaking out here in verse 6 is those who have this futility of mind are applying their worldview to the church. And so they see these Christians who have been told not to engage in sexual immorality, not to engage in this specific type of speech, and they go to them and they implore them to revisit them in their former lifestyle. And what does Paul say? Does he say, no, what you really need to do is sit down and have civil discourse. What you really need to do is sit down and have civil discourse and, you know, and just talk about maybe the merits of what they're saying as opposed to what you believe. And at the end of the day, come away with it and evaluate what they've said and what you believe and come up with some type of agreement, some type of middle road. No, instead he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Do you know how this is possible? Do you know how this is possible? i got to be honest with you. It's not by staying up late watching the news. It's not by, by reading a Wall Street Journal and, and trying to divine which stock's going to go up, which stock's going to go down. It, friends, it, it's not by finding the smartest person you know and really running every decision in your life past them. The way that you can withstand empty words is by internalizing the word. The way that you can can stand against these empty thoughts, these things that are put forward, is by internalizing the very word, the word of God. As we've been over and over and over again, there is a shocking lack of, of Christians numerically that give themselves to daily Bible reading. In fact, if I were to ask you, and I'm not, so don't raise your hand, but if I were to ask you which ones of you have not read the word this week, a large number of you would raise your hand. A large number of you would raise your hand. Or maybe if, if we made it easy and we said, well, which ones of you have, have given yourselves to kind of this, this light, easy, breezy reading? And so you've kind of got this guidepost reading. And you open it, it's got a verse robbed out of context, and you read that, and you feel good for 30 minutes until somebody says something that angers you. And then you're trying like heck to remember what was in that guidepost magazine, and you're like, hold on, hold on, I'm going to find it. Oh, now I'm just going to come at you. And you're rolling that magazine up and just going at them. If you want to stand against words of deceit, as deceitful words, there's no help other than internalizing the word of God. If you have to call me in the middle of making a decision and say, Matt, I don't know what to do. I got these empty words coming at me. I'm probably not going to answer my phone at 3 in the morning. You need to have internalized the word to stand against empty words. We need to be a people that are internalizing the word. Look what he says next. For because of these things, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I want you to recognize something. It's not the empty words that they're attacking you with that is bringing the wrath of God. It's not the, the empty words that people are trying to steer you back into your old lifestyle, trying to steer these Ephesians back into their old lifestyle that is bringing the wrath of God. But in fact, it's what he talked about in 3 through 5 of chapter 5. It is the sexual immorality, the impurity, the covetousness. It's the filthiness, the foolish talking, the crude joking, which all of these things, he says, are out of place. And look, he said, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The reason the wrath of God is coming is because of the things listed before, not the empty words that they're using. Now Paul refers to them using this, this interesting uh, descriptor, this moniker that he attributes to them. The sons of disobedience. It sounds like a great tag team wrestling uh, name, doesn't it? In this corner we've got the sons of disobedience, in the other corner we've got the sons of... 
obedience. Like, who's going to win this? Like, no one's rooting for the sons of obedience. It's the sons of disobedience. That's a great tag team wrestling name, but we see that it's also the name attributed to the opponent, those living outside the covenant people of God and those seeking to war against the church. It's the sons of disobedience. We love having an enemy that we, can, that we can name, that we can think of. Some of you, you have lots of enemies because you hold grudges like nobody's business, and you need to let that go. You need to let that go. But what he's talking about here in these sons of disobedience, he's using a rather particular name. And do you know why? Look back at chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2. Paul wants us to understand something. The wrath of God is coming upon these sons of disobedience. And some of us love the fact that God's wrath is going to be poured out on those people we despise. Those people that, 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 that are just not among us, right? But look what he's seeking to do here. Back in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world... Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we see we found these guys. The sons of disobedience are following the dictate, the leading of Satan. This is what scripture says here. They're following the prince of the power of the air. The sons of disobedience, those outside the covenant blessings of God, those outside the forgiveness found by faith through Jesus Christ are following Satan. I mean, this is just what the text says here. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. We find out that the foe that is seeking to bring us down is the people group that we used to be a part of. This is what Paul is saying. In, in some sense, he's, he's, he's calling for us to have compassion against those who are outside the covenant blessings of God. He's calling on us to have compassion upon those who in the futility of their mind, their complete, in, complete darkness, complete lostness. And in this vein, the vein that you and I once lived, like I don't care how good you think you were before you came to Christ, you were going to receive wrath outside the love and forgiveness of Christ. You could have been the best most amazing grandchild your grandmother ever, ever had. Every day she could bring you in, set you on her lap and say, Angel, I love you. Everybody loves you. You are good. And you, you, know, you remember the deal from the help. And, and she could fill you full of just how great and amazing you are and tell you that you're the most amazing and that you're God's gift to everyone. But you know who is God's gift? It is Jesus Christ. And you and I remained among these sons of disobedience until we were united in Christ. It doesn't matter how good you suppose you were. There's only one good, and it is God. And our goodness is only in us because of our identity and our union with Christ. He calls us here to remember that this wrath of God, it was coming to us. You and I, outside of Christ, we're going to receive the wrath of God. Every lost person you know, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, every lost person you know has the wrath of God coming upon them. It doesn't drive us to look at that and say, finally, they're going to get what they have coming to them. 
what it drives us to do is be burdened for their salvation. To make each and every opportunity with them count for the gospel. And Paul gives us exactly how we do that. He says, the wrath of God's coming upon the sons of disobedience. Oh, by the way, you used to be on that team. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. He uses his peculiar word here, partners with them. He's not talking about business partners. He's not talking about close friendships. In fact, this word partners has only been used once, one other time in the book of Ephesians. And it was used of these people back in Ephesians 3.6. In Ephesians 3.6, Paul wrote and said, This mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What we see in chapter 3 and verse 6 is that the Jew and the Gentile have been made one in Jesus Christ. The Jew and the Gentile have been made one in Jesus Christ, radically united. There is no difference. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're one with him. And that's what he says. He says, look, you come from radically different backgrounds. You have one that has a pagan background, the other one that has a Jewish background, but in Jesus Christ, he has made you both one. Everyone in Christ is one in him, is one in him. Everyone that is united with Christ has been a part of the same body, not a multitude of bodies that all have various manifestations, but there is only one true body. Well, this is radical unity that he's talking about here. This is radical unity that he's talking about here. And he says, do not, therefore, become partners. Don't be brought together with the unbeliever in this way. Now, in a certain sense, you say that it's impossible for us to anyway. We can't be radically united with these people. Because we are one with Christ already, and so we we cannot unite ourselves with, with others. I mean, this is why in Scripture you see over and over again, and it says that a believer and unbeliever should not be married. By extension, you can say that a, a believer and an unbeliever should not date. For what association has light with darkness? The scripture seeks to answer the question of what do you do if you find yourself in a marital relationship with a lost person? But that's not what Paul's concerned with today. If that's you, I'm happy to talk with you. He doesn't call you for divorce, but he calls you instead to live out a bold display of the gospel before the lost person. Look what he says here. Don't be partners with them. You've already been made partners with Jesus Christ. You've already been united. Don't become partners with them. Verse 8. For for at one time you were darkness. Again, he's calling on us to to recollect, to remember who we used to be. Who we used to be. He says, you are darkness. Now, it's interesting that Paul, over and over again, has said that you were in Christ, that you were in this, that you were in this. But here he says that you are the very personification of sin. You were darkness. And this is a hard thing for us to, to look at. Most of us want to be known as, you know, I, man, I'm a good guy. I'm married to this sweet girl. And so we, we tend not to want to think about how we used to be. Like if, if you're a, a serial killer, if you're an axe murderer, 
And then you come to faith in Jesus Christ and somebody says, you're darkness. Be like, absolutely, man. You should chop people up into little bitty bits. I got no, no qualms with that. But if you are an accountant, if you are a worker in the home, if you're the, this kind of salt-of-the-earth person, people in the, in the community they've looked up to for years and years and years, and you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and you look back on your former life, recognizing no overt infidelity in your part, no real wrongdoing on your part. In fact, people would stand up and testify, if, if, if he's not a Christian, then like I don't know what he is because he's just a really good person or she's just a really good person. But what Paul says, what the gospel says, what the Bible says, doesn't matter how good people suppose you were, you were darkness. You were lost completely set apart from God. You were lost completely set apart from God and his wrath was coming to you. You were darkness. Think about my own life. Before I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was darkness. I was the very embodiment of sin, of lostness. God awoken me to my sin. He called me into repentance. And he called me to walk in light. This is what the passage tells us. You were darkness. What a glorious truth that we were, but we are no longer. That we, that we were, but we are no longer. Look what he says. For at one time, or for then, you were. There was an end to the time that you were darkness. You were darkness, but now, oh, what great news. What great news that some of us, we want to beat ourselves up for the last person that we were before we came to Christ. We want to beat ourselves up over the mistakes we made. But what he says here is you were darkness, but you are now light. What great news. What a tremendous truth to walk in. What a tremendous truth to relish in. This is our identity. We were darkness. And so when we encounter lost people, we do so with tremendous compassion because we know what it is to be separated from God. We know what it is to be separated from God, but we also know what it is to experience the joy and forgiveness of walking in the light. We are light. Where? In the Lord. We are light in the Lord. That we were darkness on our own, but in the light we are united with Jesus Christ. That we were darkness, lost in the futility of our minds, trying to stumble and figure out the best way we could through this life, but we have been united. We are lost in darkness on our own, but we are light in the Lord. It's tremendous unification in Jesus Christ that solidifies our present placement in forgiveness. You see this. In darkness you were alone. You had friends, but you were all alone. The wrath of God was going to come to you, and it was going to come to you all by yourself. But in light, in light you are not alone. In light you are united with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says here. But now you are light in the Lord. And look what he calls us to. He calls us to walk out the ethical imperative of our new identity. This is tremendous. This is tremendous. Now, my, my, my children kind of have this idea so much better than I do. And it's probably because we tell them, you can't do thus and so until you are six. I should have picked a later age. I recognize that now. But we say, you can't do this until you're this age. We're at my parents' house a couple of days ago. And my dad has a, a horse trailer with living quarters on it. 
And at some time, he got it into the kids' minds that it would be great to sleep in there with, with Papa. That, that's his problem, man. That's his cross to bear. And so our, our, our three-year-old wanted to sleep in the horse trailer, and so he set this rule. You've got to be four to sleep in the horse trailer. Somebody should have picked a much higher number. But, but they get this, that when they hit that age, when they hit four, when they hit six, all of a sudden new possibilities open up to them. For Bryce, for the longest time, it was when you get to be four, you can go hunting with dad. When you get to be this age, you can do this. When you get to be this age, you can do that. But for the Christian, for the Christian, what we find is that we were darkness, but at that very moment when we were transferred into light, all of the world became possibility for us. All of the world became possibility for us. We need to walk in light of what we now are, not what we used to. To be. We need to walk in light of what he has made us by uniting us with him, not who we were when we were lost and wandering in the dark. We are in the Lord, and he calls us to walk as children of light. There needs to be a decided difference between the way the Christian walks now from the way the Christian walked before they came to know Jesus. Amen? He gives us the reason, the rationale for this. Some of you are big in application. Paul gives it to us. He says, this is why. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good, that is right, that is true. Some of you need to spend more time contemplating what is good, what is right, and what is true. Micah. Micah chapter 6, he's talking about the, the wrath of God coming upon them. And he's asking the question, what does God want? What does God want us to do? And he answers it in a really interesting way. Micah 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He's talking about giving of vast sums of wealth to God. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah gets it. It's not in, in doing these things but it is in being who God has made you. It's not in doing these things before God, but it is in being who God has created you to be. In verse 10, he says, look, in the midst of doing these things, there are certain ethical imperatives that you have to live out. As a Christian, you should not cheat on your wife. As a Christian, you should not steal. As a Christian, and so there are certain things, and we look at it and we say, oh, this is an ethical decision. Like, I know right from wrong. And we raise our children and we expect our society to obey and to not do the wrong thing, but to choose to do the right, the meritorious thing. But it is in this difficult dilemma of the non-ethical decisions. Where to live. Where to go to school. What to spend your money on. And, 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 and so it's in these things that we really struggle and we show ourselves to be a people who tend to make very selfish decisions. Look what he says to us. You're a light, walk in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The way that we live out our Christian lives, the way that we should walk as Christians is in this bold attempt at discerning what would please God. Asking the question of what would bring me most joy, what would bring me most satisfaction, what would satisfy my stomach, what would make people around me think more highly of me, what would make my life easier, these are not the questions that we primarily need to be concerned with. The question the Christian needs to ask themselves first is what would please God most? And it's really this radical change of mindset. What Paul calls us to is finding our delight in pleasing God. Finding our delight in pleasing God. So for some of us, pleasing God is going to call us to the mission field. For some of us, pleasing God is going to cause us to surrender a hobby to give more time to serve the poor in our community. For some of us, seeking to do what is pleasing to God is going to cause us to leave a high-paying job and take a much lower-paying job so that you can give more of your time to serving Him. This is difficult. Like, we really just want the God of life saving. God, you've transferred me to light. Hallelujah. Now let me have the American dream. That's what we want to impose on the gospel. But what does he say? Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This needs to be the primary motivation in the Christmas life. We know the ethical right and wrong. I know I don't need to cheat on my wife. I know I don't need to look at pornography on the internet. I know I don't need to steal money from the church. I know I need to pay my taxes. I know I don't need to slash my neighbor's tires again. Just check and see if you're listening. None of my neighbors go to this church. It doesn't, should not calm you in any way. We know the right and wrong. Like, this is really easy for us. But the difficulty is in coming before these decisions and, and going through this process and saying, God, what pleases you most? Does it please you most for me to add a payment to pay my house off sooner? Or does it please you most for me to, to look at a map, God, and to pray, God, where would you have me go? Where would you have me take my family? God, where would you have me send and, 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 and give support to a missionary on the field? This is what pleases God. Now, for some of you, God will respond and say, what pleases me is that you do pay your house off sooner so that you can allow a missionary to move into it, and then you can go on the field. You see, we kind of brought that back full circle. You didn't see where that was going. Our prayer needs to be, God, what, what's the most pleasing to you? And it's not a wrong prayer to look at it and say, God, like, I like my stuff. I like my car, some of you more than others. I like my car, I like my house, I like these toys I've got. That's, that's not bad to like these things. And a good prayer for most of us where we're at is, God, cause me to delight in what brings you joy, not what brings me happiness. Do you catch that? Asking God to change your heart's motivation, to change your heart's cry. Asking God to supernaturally change the things that you set value on. Like for most of us, this is where we are. We're struggling to walk out our Christ Christianity in the context of American commercialism. We're struggling to walk it out in this reality. And so a very good prayer for most of us is, God, 
bring me delight in things that would come from you, not in things my neighbors would look at and rejoice in. For most of us, our prayer needs to be, God, change my heart and cause me to find delight and treasure in those things that would bring you joy, not what would bring me happiness. Look in verse 11. He says, no, take no part Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Well, this just sounds delightful. This sounds delightful. Some of us in our pharisaical interpretations of Christianity can't wait to find those non-believers around us and find them in the midst of doing bad things and, and, and to turn the flashlight on them and say, aha! Like, I mean, we, just, we would love this. We, we revel in being this younger brother who's constantly tattling on the older brother. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about here. This idea of exposing them. He tells us in the first vein, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't engage in in non-Christian behavior. Don't engage in these things that you formerly walked in. This is why he said don't be partners with them. Because in being partners with them, their lifestyle begins to rub off on you. He says, don't engage in these unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. How do we expose them? By letting the light of the gospel shine forth. We expose these unfruitful works of darkness by allowing the light of the gospel to shine forth from us. So as we engage in loss, with lost people, so if James is a lost person, and I'm, I'm spending time with him, and James is just this, this horrible reprobate. I'm so sorry, Susan, he's not. Like, I, I know nothing. I know nothing. Anyway, and so, it, like, I'm engaging in this lifestyle, and I'm, I'm over here with him, and the gospel is just flowing through, and so James is just bad-mouthing his wife and just boozing it up big time and all these things. He's like, you want something? I'm like, nah. He's like, oh, do you want to go cheat on your wife? I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. Well, why don't you want to do that? Well, the, the gospel has changed me. I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven. Light of the gospel shines through my life. It highlights my former lostness, that I was darkness. But that God has now called me to walk in light of who I am now, and it's shining on James. I'm not seeking to guilt him. I'm not seeking to convince him that this is a better way of life, that I can have a happier home life if, if, if suddenly I wouldn't, if he wouldn't cheat on his wife, he could just have a happier home life. I'm not concerned with his home life. I'm concerned with his salvation. And being concerned with the salvation, the things in his home life will work themselves out. What we need to do is allow the light of the gospel to have an impact in all those places we go. When many of you, you work at L3. Can people see the light of the gospel in you there? You work in a school. You work in a hospital. You work in some nonprofit. You work over in Dallas. Can people see the light of the gospel in you? Is the light of the gospel so dimmed and veiled in you that all they know is that you're not a person that does bad things? What he calls us to do is to live out the gospel in such a way that the light from the gospel exposes those things around us. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for us. He brought the light of the gospel into our hearts. He brought the light of the gospel into our lives. 
John 3.20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus has brought the light of the gospel to be at home in our hearts. He exposed us for who we were. We were darkness, but he has made us light. Let us be living out the implications of the gospel in our homes, living out the implications of the gospel at the grocery store, living out the implications of the gospel when we go to contest our tax values. Let us be living out the implications of the gospel in each and every place that God sovereignly deems us to be and designs us to be. Take no part in the unfruitful works of the darkness, but instead expose them. He brings us back to this idea as he did earlier that it's shameful to speak of the things they do in the secret. This is how radically different he wants us to be. That we don't sit around with our Christian friends and talk about how bad and how terrible the lost people we encounter are. But instead, what should we do? We should pray for them. We should be praying that God would strengthen our resolve, strengthen our manifestation of the gospel, his love in their lives, that it would make a difference. And look what he says here in 13, 14. This is, this is interesting. This is where we'll jump off today. He says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Well, this is one of those statements that you certainly look at it and you think, well, there's got to be a deeper level to this because this is just really obvious. Anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. What did he say in John 3.20? They didn't want to come into the light because they didn't want their, those things in their lives to be shown for what they are. When the light, who is Jesus, comes into our lives, he exposes our sin, he exposes our hidden nature, he exposes all those things that we had kept compartmentalized that we really didn't want anybody to see. And he calls on us to respond to the light of the gospel. It becomes visible. It's, it's, it's shown to us. And for the Christian, we are broken when we see our sin. We cry out to God for forgiveness. We cry out to God to help us walk out repentance. We confess those things before him. It becomes visible. It is shown. And look what he says in verse 14. For anything that becomes visible... Is light. It's talking about the transformation that takes place in the Christian. The unbeliever seeks to keep these things hidden back from God, not to allow light to have any impact in there. But for the Christian, this is what you do. You're coming to Jesus Christ, you're standing before him, and you're burying all. Remember in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and it said they were unashamed? For the Christian, it is to stand before a holy God and to recognize that he sees everything, that we have every right and reason to be very much ashamed. But what we do is we cling to the promise, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and we receive that forgiveness. And he makes our former way of existence just that, former. We were dead but he has made us alive. We were walking in darkness, but now because of the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ at work in our lives, in our hearts, he has made us to be visible. Anything that becomes visible, that is shown, is light. 
The Christian is light in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Christian is light in this dark world. The Christian is light. You, friend, if you are a believer through faith in Jesus Christ, have a very real opportunity to be light in every situation that he puts you in. Look what it says here. Paul says, therefore it says, and he gives us this this early Christian hymn, Awake, O sleeper. This is the light crying out into the darkness. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. For each and every person who has believed through faith in Jesus Christ, we have heard the voice of Jesus crying out in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our death. And he bid us come. He bid us come and be raised with him. He bid us come and be raised from the dead. And in that action, in his action, his light shined on us. This is what he calls us to. We walk out the reality of this change. We walk out the reality that his light has come to shine on us for what purpose? That it might shine out on all those we encounter. Christian, Christian, walk out the gospel. Quit seeking to accommodate, to make cool, to to contextualize the gospel. Live out the gospel. Live out who he has made you to be not who you once were. And to the non-believer, to the person standing at honest, to the person resting in darkness, this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ says to you. It says, arise. It speaks to you who are, who are dead in your transgressions, dead in your sin, and it calls you, come. Not come and give an account, Not come so that he can set you on a program and a pattern where you can then be presentable. No, he calls you in your deadness. Come. Allow the light of Christ to shine on you, to make you whole, to make you live, and to make you be forgiven and united with him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you for your word that God, you didn't call the best of us. You didn't call the most righteous of us. You didn't call the most popular of our community, of our group. But you called each of us out of deadness. God, I thank you that, that each of us, in a very real sense, have the same story. That no matter what our former selves were doing, that all of us were lost in darkness. That all of us have the same forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We've all been forgiven much. God, I pray for the Christian that you would cause them to rest in the reality of their forgiveness. That you would drive them to walk out the reality of that. And Father, I pray for the non-Christian, for the unbeliever, that your spirit would be wooing them from darkness. God, showing them your deep love for them, 
the forgiveness afforded them in the blood of Jesus Christ. God, that you would bid them come. Arise, O sleeper. That the light of Christ would shine on them and that they would be forgiven. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we enter into a time of application. That in whatever way the word went forward and hit you, that you would respond. Whether you need to come forward and pray and say, God, I just need to set my life right. I need to be walking out the implications of the gospel in my life. Or maybe some of you need to respond to the gospel. Let us turn our hearts towards applying his word.